According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Philippians. Join me there once again in Philippians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 7 through 12, or 7 through 11, actually, as we uh, discuss the, uh, the prophet of law statement and uh, the apostle Paul and his uh, wisdom in taking all things that would be gain and re-reckoning them, counting them but loss, moving them over to the red column instead of the black column on his ledger, and, uh, and, and writing it all off as a loss because the surpassing value is knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And so we'll be dealing, as we have already been dealing with these issues, he spells it out then for the things that actually catch us by surprise. There's elements that we think, well, isn't that already a given? Doesn't he already have that? Doesn't he already have the righteousness of God imputed to his account? What is this uh, other thing he's talking about? And why is it he's hoping to be resurrected someday? Is that what it really is saying? He's not saying that. Okay? And that's why we want to stop and slow down and make sure that we're clear and we don't just read at a very rapid surface level without thinking about it. Because when he says, if perhaps maybe I might attain to the resurrection from the dead, why is he so iffy on that? You know, uh, we're all, if we have eternal life, we know we're going to be resurrected. So why is he talking about it as a potential? in uh, in this application there in verse 11. So that's why we take time, we slow down, we read it from the Greek, we put Scripture together with Scripture in order to have the correct interpretation. All right? Now before we begin any of this though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning and the truth of your word, the blessing that you have provided for us, Father, uh, on a grace basis. You have supplied a lampstand where the word of God goes forth, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And I thank you, Father, that you've designed for the word of God to be learned on this basis. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us, Father. We thank you for the teaching minister, the Holy Spirit that opens the eyes of our understanding that leads us in all things, even the deep things of God. So we thank you and praise you, Father, this morning in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, working through the outline here, and and, uh, we've gone through point one with the uh, reclassification, everything that was again, he has re-reckoned. It's a past-completed action, uh, paying attention to the past tense there in verse 7. Uh, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. And that's a completed action. In the Greek, the perfect tense is a past completed action with present ongoing results. And so I think it was on uh, the, the blindness of the Damascus Road. And I think that for the three days that he spent before he received his sight, he spent that time praying and he spent that time recategorizing things as he started to realize uh, what he had been doing prior to that day and what he needed to start doing moving forward. We have the past tense in verse 7. We have the present tense in verse 8. And that's what we emphasized in point 2 because that initial adjustment was not enough. You don't just start with a one-time reckoning. You don't just start with a one-time adjustment in your thinking. Even if it's perfect tense, even if it has present ongoing results, you still are going to have multiple re-reckonings uh, constantly. 
You're going to constantly have readjustments. You're going to constantly be learning new doctrine. You're going to constantly be having occasions in your Christian walk. I don't care how long you've been saved, where you're going to sit down and be, be slapped upside the head by the Word of God and go, wow, I need to, I need to adjust something here. Okay? And that's, uh, that's God's good pleasure to do that and to do that in His timing and in His, uh, in His faithfulness. And so above and beyond that initial adjustment, Paul continues to make ongoing profit and loss adjustments. And, uh, and so this is um, the nature of it here, where he goes, more than that, I continue to, present tense, re-reckon or to count all things to be lost. And so those present tense adjustments continue as well. And, and I don't know why that surprises us. It shouldn't surprise us. Uh, I think uh, our, our Father is very gracious to allow us to retest on certain things. And uh, not just to retest the, the previous tests where we failed, but to retest previous tests where we had victory, where we succeeded. Uh, knowing that we succeeded younger in our younger spiritual walk, but that was with a whole lot of grace and a whole lot of hedge, uh, a protective hedge that's raised around us with a lot of other things that uh, God in His graciousness blesses us with in our in our spiritual youth. And then as we get older and older and more accountability comes in and he lowers that hedge a bit and then we find ourselves facing the same test and now it's a lot harder these days. Why is that? We think, you know, this was a breeze 20 years ago. Why is this so difficult now? All right, because that hedge has been lowered and lowered. And, uh, and these are the things, too, that I think, um, you know, when I'm praying for pastors and older pastors in particular, they're not going to automatically pass their test just because they've been a, a pastor for 50 years. Are you kidding me? They, that, their hedge is so far low right now, man, we better be ramping up those prayers on, uh, on their behalf. And so these are the things that we, uh, that we look at here. In point three, I gave you some, uh, some vulgar language. We talked about uh, how, to, how to say poop in Greek and uh, some of the, the things there. That is the word. It's a word for excrement. It's a, a rather vulgar expression. And just like with English, almost every language, you're going to have four or five or six different ways to say the same thing. Um, and, and in particular, bodily waste has different ways to express it. And, and some, some terms are cruder than others, but, but Jesus uses this term, or, or Paul here uses this term, and it is, it is, it's loud and dirty. And, and uh, when he says, I count all things to be uh, lost, he says, count them but rubbish. And rubbish is the, is the kind of the kind expression here for, for scubalon in, uh, in that. So we talked about that. It is, it's designed to be so filthy and so disgusting that once, you want to be just rid of it. You want to you just let it go, and 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 that's the nature of it. And uh, so he gives it with some pretty vulgar terms there. Under point four, now we're hitting where we ran out of time. On in fact, it was a week ago. I was not here Wednesday night, so it was a week ago that we were last in uh, in this. The idea of knowing Christ, that I may know Him, to be found in Him and knowing Him. And then gaining him. These are the different verbs that this passage addresses. And gaining Christ. The idea of knowing Christ is a bigger concept than simply becoming saved. There is no way in the world this passage has anything to do with getting saved. Paul's been saved for years by the time that he's writing uh, Philippians. None of this is, uh, none of these purpose clauses has anything to do with receiving eternal life, with going to heaven when you die, with passing from darkness into light. The idea of knowing Christ, it's a bigger concept than simply becoming saved. We know Him at the moment we, we get saved, and then we keep knowing Him, we keep knowing Him, we know Him more and more, 
And uh, that's the nature of it. Now, I think I want to take the time this morning to show us these parallels. This section has significant vocabulary parallelism with chapter 2, with the kenosis hymn of chapter 2. And so uh, if you have to do a page flip, probably, we'll do a page flip here to look back and forth. But remember the kenosis hymn. This is the, the, the tremendous doctrine in chapter 2 where Jesus emptied himself. You remember that uh, he, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So let me just pick up the reading here uh, in chapter 2. And uh, when you look at starting in verse 5, when it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so uh, as we look at these verses and we see this great humility of our Savior, he did. He, he descended from the ivory palaces and he took that form and he limited himself in that form, in that earthly walk. And that's what that hymn communicates. And we should have the same thinking ourselves. Now when we get into chapter 3, we find this passage has these parallels. And so we have uh, the parallelism with the, the verb here to consider. That's chapter 2 and verse 6. He did not regard equality with God. That's that's the consider term. And it comes back in chapter 3 and verse 8. More than that, I regard, I count all things to be lost. Uh, And goes on to say, I count them but rubbish. The idea of regarding, the idea of thinking. Paul clearly has the, the same process going on that Jesus had. This is Paul's kenosis. It should be our kenosis as well, where we lay aside uh, whatever it is we think is a privilege we're entitled to, (laughs) okay? And we just lay it aside like Jesus laid aside his privileges. And so the verb consider has the parallel. The idea of form, that uh, although he existed in the the form of God, uh, he took the form of a bondservant. And that's the the statement there in chapter 2. The parallelism comes up here in chapter 3. The form that we have in 310. And this is the uh, the like form, the conformed that we have here in verse 10. Um, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, being morphed together with Jesus in, in, uh, in this aspect. And we're going to uh, discuss what that death conformity is for our practical application here today. But the forming, right? So, well, I don't like it. <laughs> oh, okay. That's irrelevant. You probably don't like it. I don't like it either. I mean, who who would? But this is necessary. This is this is the uh, the process that the Father has put into place. And I'm sure Jesus didn't like it. The cross wasn't pleasant. Are you kidding me? And yet, he did it. He did it to obey the Father. He did it to please the Father. He did it to benefit all of us right? And so there is an eternal outcome for the temporal, the momentary light affliction. And uh, this becomes important as well. Then there's the idea of being found. And we're going to stress this here this morning, the idea of being found. In 2.8, the expression was being found in appearance as a man. And uh, here in 3.10, it's being found. It's... um, the uh, being observed that uh, in three, where's found? Three nine, 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Okay? That's being found, being observed, being seen, being witnessed. Okay? And we're going to discuss the nature of who's watching us anyway. <laughs> and why are they watching? And, and when am I found? Because okay? it's both in time and in eternity, which is uh, exciting. And then finally, the, the kurios, the references to Lord in 2.11. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then the Lord reference in 3.8. Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is why I think MacArthur and and that whole lordship salvation thing misses the point. Lordship is not to get saved. Lordship is what gets developed after you're saved as you're being transformed by the Word of God, as you're growing more and more obedient to the Word of God. He is your Lord more so than ever before, the more that you know Him and the, the longer you serve Him. And so the lordship aspect uh, we can address there. And so that's what we're going to do here in the subpoints. Uh, talking about gaining, that is winning Christ or profiting Christ. This is the experiential realization of our positional reality. And I, I use these terms a lot, uh, not to confuse people, but hopefully to make it useful, to make it um, uh, in, a, in a graphical diagram kind of a way that we can understand position versus experience. We can contrast reality with realization. All right, that we can have a, a, a subjective uh, appreciation for the objective truth of the Word of God. And that's, if we can't, if we can't make it practical, then I think sometimes some of these esoteric studies, uh, they're, they're of no value to us. And we say, okay, it's objectively too, uh, true, but what does it do for me? How do I live it? Or what, what's the, what's the significance? I know what it means, but, but so what? You know, what, what impact does it have in my Christian walk? And so, I think this is the idea that it's a gain. Not just uh, being in Christ, but gaining Christ. And uh, the whole, we, we studied it when we talked about uh, gain versus loss, winning and profiting, how wives can win their husbands in, uh, in 1 Peter 3, how church discipline can win a brother, and uh, in different applications there. There were a lot of different ways that this term was used. But the experiential realization of our positional reality, you remember I drew you, that, drew you this picture last week also with uh, respect to that one, Nick. Where was it? Where was it? Where was it? There it is. That that positional reality is true. Everything that is true is reality. Reality is what is, okay? And then... I don't want to belabor this, but we live in a generation that is trying to redefine reality and trying to redefine meaning and what is. And uh, they'll even go so far as to say there are no absolutes, which is ludicrous on its face because when they declare that, they're making an absolute statement. So there is reality. Reality is what is. And our position in Christ is what is. That's our position. And so the minute I place my faith in Christ... All of these positional truth realities are, are clear. I am in Christ. I am baptized in the union with Christ. I'm baptized by the Holy Spirit. I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit. I have eternal life. I have a spiritual gift. All of these positional realities. I'm identified with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Those are all positional realities. And I'm given however many there are, right? 36, 39, 53 Different pastors number them in different ways. But all of these position possessions, they're the salvation grace package. It's Every believer gets this the, the moment they're saved. 
It's a positional reality. And of course, nobody knows any of this stuff, the, the split second you're saved, because you've got to learn these things. They come through the study of the Word of God. You gradually learn these over the years. And so then what is a positional reality, what is objective, then gets made subjective. It becomes an experience. It's our experiential realization then. We actually walk it out. And then what bridges that, of course, is faith. We're walking by faith, not by sight. We're taking the positional reality and we're living that way. And so it takes the objective and it makes it subjective. It becomes our experiential realization. And that's what happens when I gain Christ. When I gain Christ. I already have Him the moment I'm saved, but now I'm gaining Him. Because now I have that subjective realization. Now I'm living with that reality day by day, moment by moment. And that's, uh, that's just such a, a huge benefit in that regard. All right. And so we start living that way. And it has a practical benefit, like 1 Corinthians 3. There's a practical benefit here. Verses 21 through 23. Let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. Don't you, don't you see how practical that is? Everything's yours because you're in Christ and Christ is in the Father and, and you belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. So relax about these things you think you don't have. Don't, don't covet something, right? Because everything belongs to you in Christ. And these temporal things, these earthly things, these things you're lusting over, these things you're coveting and whatever, those are the things slated for destruction. What are you lusting over those things for? Why are you coveting over those things? We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And when we get there, all the things of this earth, we're not going to remember them. The the things of this world, forgotten, gone. We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. And so that positional reality, when it becomes a subjective realization, that's, uh, that's, that's huge. That helps us relax. That, that uh, you know, I don't, I don't uh, for example, I, you know, I, I might, in human terms, I might be uh, disappointed in, in myself, my lack of ability. I wish I could sing better. You know, why does Jacob have that rich bass singing voice? And, uh, and I'm a, a squeaky baritone that kind of can get a little low, but man, you know, well, guess what? Jacob's singing voice belongs to me because I belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God, okay? And so when he is blessing us, I'm not resenting him, I'm not jealous, I'm enjoying it, I'm celebrating it. It becomes a blessing for all of us, right? That's what we're dealing with, with all things belong to you, okay? Likewise, his Scrabble ability. I'm not going to be jealous over Jacob's Scrabble ability. But because he's coaching me, he's helping me, I'm getting better. All right. All things belong to you. It's practical. It's absolutely practical. An object of truth becomes a subjective realization. We can be thankful for that. Likewise, Ephesians 1, 3. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you think that's powerful? And uh, if, if I allow myself to be myopic, 
if I allow myself to not pay attention to the objective reality, then I might start moaning about blessings I think I don't have yet. But the objective truth is I have them. I have every spiritual blessing. Blessed be the God and Father. This is Ephesians 1, 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, notice, past completed action. It's done. Present ongoing results. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay? What more do you want? Why do you want more when you have everything? Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. And it keeps going. This is the longest sentence in the New Testament. It keeps on going. And all of these are positional truth realities before the foundation of the world. He saved us. He made this choice. He selected us. He elected us. He predestined us. All the things that He did here. He blessed us. And so we want to function daily with that experience, realizing the reality. Finally, 2 Corinthians 6.10. 2 Corinthians 6.10. And uh, this is the conclusion to a lengthy sentence. Um, But it centers here as having nothing yet possessing all things. Okay? Do we understand this? Do we understand how can you have nothing yet have everything? Because you have a spiritual realization of these realities. And you're not, you're not worried about the, the temporal life issues. You're not worried about the, the outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. You're not worried about uh, being poor yet making many rich. There are all the things here. This is all our imitation of Christ. All right, so we have, uh, we have those issues there. Being found in Him. What does it mean to be found in Him? Being found in Him is the cosmological display of victory through grace. What do I mean by cosmological, and why don't I spell it with a K? <laughs> the Greek word is cosmos, and it starts with a kappa. Greek doesn't have a C. Cosmological display, the cosmos. We, we live in a fallen cosmos, and yet we're looking for the new one, right? This fallen cosmos. We have Satan as the god of this age. This is, uh, this is uh, where we are in the angelic conflict, and we are on display. Angels are watching. Humans are watching. God is watching. Being found in Him is the cosmological display of victory through grace, manifested both in time and eternity manifested both in time and eternity. See, it's more than just being placed in Him, being baptized in Him, being sealed in Him. All of those are past completed actions. All of those are done the moment you're saved. You're in Christ, and you can never get out of Christ. You're eternally in Christ. But but to be found in Christ, to be displayed as in Christ, to be exhibited, that's that's what our Father does. Our Father is, is the biggest show-and-tell artist in, in, the, in the universe. He is constantly displaying things. 
He is displaying His righteousness. He is displaying His mercy. He is displaying His goodness. And so now we are the display. Since He's brought His Son to heaven, His Son is seated at His right hand. Now He's doing the display show through us. And so we are the cosmological display, the testimony of grace through faith, the testimony of grace manifested both in time and eternity. See, and so we can't boast in ourselves. We can't make any great claims and look how great we are, look what we're doing. All right, God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. He, t- he selects the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. It's a testimony of victory through grace is what it is. And it's described here, being found in him, um, not having a righteousness of my own. I don't want to display anything that, that I can do. I don't want to display any of my self-righteousness because my self-righteousness is, is filthy rags. Okay, That's the righteousness that comes from faith. Positional and experiential. How about Matthew 5.16? Let your light shine before men in such a way. In what way? In such a way that they're impressed with you? That they look at you and go, wow, I wish I was him. Okay, no. <clears throat> the purpose for the light is you're reflecting God's light. You are Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. If your light's not shining in such a way, then we need the adjustment, right? We've got to make that adjustment. Let your light shine in such a way. It's not about us. It's what God's doing in and through us for His good pleasure. It's a display. It's a display of victory through grace. God gets the, the, the glory. We're going to boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And, and let your light shine in that way. See? And I think this is, uh, some believers struggle with this because they don't want to risk boasting the wrong way so they don't boast at all and that's wrong you got to boast in the lord you got to boast in the lord and if you're using never boast for any reason at any time as your defense mechanism to avoid boasting in yourself find a different defense mechanism (laughs) okay boast in the lord excessively in the lord constantly tell tell everybody you meet all day every day how great the lord is and uh and it, it's pretty obvious when you're boasting what the Lord's doing, when you're shining your light in such a way, they see what the Father's doing, then uh, you're not spotlighting yourself. You know that. God knows that. All right, so that's the, that's the principle there. In, uh, in Matthew 10. <clears throat> the, um, the issue here becomes important, and this is... Um, curious to me because it's, again it's part of that display we're supposed to uh, the, the father puts us on display we should be putting these things on display if we're if we if we don't why not it says everyone who confesses me before men i will also confess him before my father who is in heaven don't you want this confession don't you want to be on display when the son presents us to the father for the maximum reward well, then we need to put him on display on earth. Everyone who confesses me before men, <clears throat> and this is not 
salvation, this is our experience. This is the testimony that we have. Confessing Jesus. I will confess Him before my Father who is in heaven. And that's, that's, a, that's an easy reward to get. You know? You just got to talk to people about Jesus. And the more you do, man, you're just lining yourself up to receive this confession reward right here. And uh, it's only granted if Jesus confesses you to the Father. And um, whoever denies me before man, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And so you can lose this reward. You can chicken out and not testify to, uh, to Jesus Christ before men for whatever reason. People get embarrassed. Or they're not comfortable. They don't want to talk about it. Whatever. They're, they're undercover, you know, secret agent Christians. They just, you know, you would never know they're Christians because they never tell anybody. <clears throat> you know? <laughs> no. Tell everybody. Everybody. And the more you confess Christ, you're just lining yourself up here for this confession as Jesus will confess you before His Father. But if you deny Christ, oh, look out. Jesus will deny you this reward. Not salvation, it's reward in this context, clearly. How about Acts 4.13? On display, to be displayed. And... uh, this is curious because it uh, Peter and, and John were arrested and uh, in the early part of the chapter here. That's not fun. I mean, goodness. And uh, so the chapter starts, they were speaking to the people and the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Depending on what time of day you get arrested and booked, you may not get magistrated till the morning. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And so the next day then, they have to stand and answer for what they're doing here. And, and it's curious, but when you notice when you get down here, Peter says, look, if we're in verse 9, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. And so that's what we're talking about. You're, you're naming the name of Jesus. You're, you're uh, testifying. You are uh, uh, not denying. You're confessing the name of Jesus. And this is what Peter's doing right here. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. That's how it's both a stumbling stone and a capstone. And there is no sal- and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter uses this opportunity. And of course, jail's no fun. Hospitals are no fun. Uh, you find yourself in a hospital or you find yourself in jail, wherever you find yourself, just don't grumble about it. Recognize it, especially if it's undeserved suffering. Say, hey, God's got me right where he wants me. (laughs) I don't want to be here, but uh, there's a purpose. And so, uh, you know, do I like having, uh, like I'm sure Doug doesn't like having throat cancer, but he has a chance to meet people he wouldn't meet otherwise. And uh, he gets to go places and see people. 
Talk about Jesus. Now, verse 13 then, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John. What are we talking about? We're talking about a display. We're talking about a cosmological display of victory through grace. Here are all these, I mean, we're talking the the whole Sanhedrin here. We're talking high priests. We're talking, you know, PhDs everywhere. These super educated men. And then a couple of Galilean fishermen. (laughs) And they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. Now, that's not true. They're not uneducated. They just weren't educated in their schools. They're not untrained. They just weren't trained with their methodology. And that's and so we have uh, you know agrammatos and idiotes. We've got words here for idiot, words here for illiterate. You know, if someone calls you a moron, they're using a Greek word. They don't even know it. Okay, <clears throat> which seems like who's the moron if you don't even know the where your word came from. But they observe the confidence of Peter and John, uneducated, unlettered, literally, ah, grammatos. Gramma is a letter, ah, unlettered. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. <laughs> okay? And that's what I want for our training ministry, for our school here. Because uh, when we do an ordination, when we send a, a pastor out and he takes up a, a pulpit, you know, he's unlettered. We don't, when, when they graduate from Austin Bible Church, they don't get letters after their name. They can't walk out of here as, you know, Pastor Cliff Beveridge, PhD or whatever. Okay? They're unlettered. But they will be recognized as having been with Jesus. They're going to be recognized. And they're going to be amazed. They're going to be blessed. So this is the cosmological display. And it's, it's in time, it's in eternity, it's on earth before men, it's before friends, before enemies. Before, even, uh, even the enemies can't deny that there's something going on here. Before angels, before God, ultimately we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, that display will, uh, will continue. Titus. Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 3 Timothy. No, Titus. There is no 3 Timothy. You could think of it as 3 Timothy, but it's Titus. These are the pastoral epistles. And uh, there's a display that happens here. In fact, I think we can even go earlier than verses 7 and 8 because the display actually happens uh, with older men and older women. Titus 2 says, as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Why? Because it benefits others as well as themselves. It's a display. It's it's living out of the faith so that younger men can look to those older men and have that role model, have that example, have that um, encouragement. Older women likewise also are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, 
to be sensible, pure, workers at home. And it goes on, but we see these are displays. Older men to the younger men, older women to the younger women. And uh, cosmological displays so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, I urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself. And this is uh, Paul now discussing this with uh, Titus personally. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. So we are a cosmological display in, in Pastor Timothy, or Pastor Titus here, first and foremost, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. If these displays are in place, then anything bad they say is going to be slander. It's going to be a lie. You know, uh, you know if you've if you got bad things to say, you know, they're not going to be true because we're walking before the Lord. We're standing before the Lord in our integrity. And, uh, and if, if anyone wants to ask about it, okay, if there's stories about Austin Bible Church being told and other churches around and whatever, all right, come talk to me, I don't care. You know, um, if it's true, I'll tell you it's true. All right. So that the uh, opponents will be put to shame. And this is why it's, it's a, it's a um, part of the, the angelic conflict, to not only for God to win, but for the opponents to understand why they lost, to understand what the truth actually is. Because every tongue has to confess. Every knee will bend. And those confessing tongues, what's, what's going to motivate their confession? Because they're going to know better. They're going to know. They're going to be convinced. They're going to know because of what they've seen, what the Father has shown them, what the Father has displayed. And you're going to be part of that display. We all are. And so uh, these things become significant. Hebrews 11. When you talk about on display, all the Old Testament saints, they were on display in their own generation, and then it was written in the Bible, and they're on display for us, and they're on display forever in the Bible. And uh, these men of whom the world was not worthy, and they walked by faith, and yeah, they went through terrible persecutions. And uh, you can read this chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it gets summarized here at the end of chapter 11. It says, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And so the Old Testament saints were pointing forward to something coming after, namely us. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Oftentimes we need to stop and humble ourselves and recognize, wait a minute, this is a display and the display is so much bigger than us and the display may be for those that are coming after us. The display may have nothing to do with anything I'm going to experience in my lifetime. But this display is something my kids are watching, my grandkids are watching, other people are watching. And 50 years from now someone's going to look back and say, you know what, I remember when And that display is going to bear fruit. And our Father knows how to do all this. It's uh, beyond anything we can plan, I'll tell you that. And so uh, apart from us, they would not be made perfect. 
And so what's he accomplishing in our generation? What's he going to accomplish in the next generation? The next generation. And, uh, and recognize the plan of God is so much bigger. First Peter 2.12 then, the last reference on this. This cosmological display. Verse 9 says, you are a chosen race. Isn't that great? <laughs> Whatever you were before you got saved, you got a new race now. And that's uh, that's 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 a thrill. That's that's you know that's that's incredible. That's why there's no racists in the in the church age, and there there shouldn't be. If you're a, if you're a follower of biblical Christianity, are you kidding me? No Jew, no Gentile, whatever race you were before you got saved, we're now a chosen race in Christ, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. See, here's more display. What are his excellencies? Start proclaiming them. Start proclaiming how great God is. Tell how great God is all day, every day. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul and keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? Why? So that in the thing in, thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. That's what we're talking about. All right? Every knee will, will, will confess. Every tongue will bend. Or the other way around. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bend, all right? And think about the memory recall. Think about what God will bring to the forefront of their thinking when they're standing before that that, uh, great white throne. These are the things that are on display, both in time and in eternity. So when you get slandered, when they say all kinds of evil against you for, for Jesus' name's sake, rejoice. Rejoice, count it all joy. So Paul says, I want to be found in him with his righteousness. Angels, men, friends, enemies, everybody. When they look at Paul, Paul wants them to see Christ and the righteousness of Christ. And then knowing, knowing Christ with three specific aspects. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Philippians 3.10 has knowing Christ with three specific aspects. And things that really you learn in the, in the uh, testing, you learn in the walk, you learn in the conflict. You can learn them academically from the Bible, but then you're really, really going to know them when you're living it out in, in faith, you know? Uh, I mean, how do you learn when I am weak that I am strong? How do you learn that truly? You can read the verse, you can believe it, you can process it, you can accept the factual information, you can digest it by faith. But when you when the testing comes and you find how weak you truly are and you find how strong he truly makes you, now you know it. Now you know it with a full gnosis, epinosis, oida, sophia, everything. Okay? 
And that's what we're talking about, knowing Christ in these three specific aspects, starting with the power of His resurrection. What is that? The power of His resurrection. It's not someday, it's now, it's today. The power of His resurrection is the grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life. The power of His resurrection is the grace empowerment. (laughs) When... uh, you're doing what you're doing and the sin temptation comes in and you brush it off and you keep walking in the newness of life, that's the power of the resurrection. That wasn't your willpower. That wasn't your human ability. If you think it was, think again. Okay? It's the power of the resurrection. It's the grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life. Romans 6 addresses this. 2 Corinthians 4 addresses this. Ephesians 1 addresses this. The grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life. It's uh, unique to our church age too, by the way. Uh, Israel in the Old Testament, they were given external laws. They were given, you know, the, the tablets and all the other commandments. They were given all of these thou shalt nots <laughs> and no grace empowerment. No divine empowerment to do any of it. We are not under law, we're under grace. And then beyond that, we're given this grace empowerment. We're indwelled by God the Holy Spirit. We're indwelled by Him, we're empowered by Him, we're led by Him. And we have this empowerment to walk in the newness of life. And uh, I wouldn't trade the church age for anything. Are you kidding me? You know, I might, uh, if I had a time machine, I might want to go back and visit. I might want to, you know, see some things. You know, but I wouldn't want to live there and I wouldn't want to be a believer under those stewardship conditions. So what is this newness of life? Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? This This is true for New Testament believers in Christ. Now that got saved in the Old Testament. Don't get me wrong. They got saved, their sins were forgiven, but they were not baptized in a union with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't die to sin as we die to sin. They didn't die to Christ as we die to Christ. Their sin nature wasn't crucified with Christ as our sin nature was crucified with Christ. Let's, let's uh, understand the uniqueness of church age positional truth. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There is so much truth in this. There is so much to digest with this. But just recognize how powerful this is. That we too might Walk in the newness of life. You have a purpose clause. The purpose clause is expressed in a subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood is the mood of potential. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But the purpose of why he did what he did is so that we could do what we should do. So are we? And if we're not, whose fault is that? If I fail to walk in the newness of life, is that his fault? That's on me. 
Because he made every provision so that I could. Because I should. We too. For, uh, so verse 5. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Do you know that? Keep on knowing that. And keep on knowing that on an experiential basis in the forefront of your thinking. Let that thinking shape your actions. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Okay? And so when you do sin, why are you doing that? You should be dead to sin. Stop doing that. We have the empowerment to never sin again for the rest of our life. Okay? And clearly, in all likelihood, every one of us will. Don't have to. And every sin we do commit is one we didn't have to because we have the empowerment not to. Walk by means of the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a promise. So knowing this, our old self was crucified. We no longer be slave to sin. Verse 7, he who has died is free from sin. You know, death ends a lot of things. It ends the marriage relationship. It ends the slavery relationship. You're not a slave anymore. You've died. You're free from sin. So if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Christ. This becomes so powerful. But you have to consider it. You have to think this way. Think this way. Verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Think this way. Consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what the power of the resurrection is all about. The power of the resurrection is the power that keeps you from sinning, that keeps your eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Keeps you in fellowship and not falling into carnality. That's the power of his resurrection. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 10 through 12. There's more empowerment. Verse 7 says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Now, I don't know. Wouldn't it be, what would the Christian way of life be like if the moment you got saved, God immediately raptured you into a resurrection body? And then you could live out the rest of your life on earth in a resurrection body and never sin ever again? Well, what in his design? And what would we learn that way anyway? And live out the rest of your life? Wait a minute. If I'm raptured at the moment of salvation, then the rest of my life is forever. Anyway. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. So we stop walking in the flesh. We st- the power isn't from the flesh. The power is from Him. The surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And so when we can be afflicted, we're uh, not crushed. When we're perplexed, we're not despairing. Because that power is not coming from us. And notice it's not uh, if, it's when <laughs> we are afflicted. Not if, but when we're, perf- we're perplexed. Not if, but when we're persecuted. Not if, but when. All these things. 
always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. Now, how does that work? Remember when we taught this in the Second Corinthians series? How does that work? How do I carry about the dying of Jesus? I mean, what is that? How do I carry about the dying of Jesus? We're actually going to discuss that when we talk about being conformed to his death. Okay? We're carrying it about. We are, we're, we're always ready to lay down our life. We're always, because there's no greater love. We're always ready. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. This fallen thing, it's not saved yet, this fallen thing, I can still glorify God with my body. If I have the correct perspective, the right attitude, if it's shaped by this mindset, if I'm employing the power of His resurrection, then I can manifest that life of Jesus, manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us and life in you. Anyway, if you want more on that, we taught it in the uh, Second Corinthians series. Ephesians 1, 19-21. The power of His resurrection. Living today with a present anticipation of what's coming. That's the power of His resurrection. part of his prayer life here he says i pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of his glory of the glory of his inheritance in the saints all right presently we should know all these things and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe the power of his resurrection and we have it now in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. This is the power of His resurrection. When He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. So if I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, that means I need to be identifying with where He is, where I am, seated at His right hand as He's seated at God's right hand. What is this power? What is this reality? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We wrestle with these guys. That's why we have our armor on. But understand, we are in Christ and we are so far above. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so we have our focus on the here and now, but we're looking for, what are we looking for? New heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's right. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things. He put all things in subjection under his feet. Remember, all things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's such power to this. It's unique to the church age. Old Testament saints didn't have the power of His resurrection. We do. And we, we ought to be walking that walk today. We should be living that out right here, right now. This is what's preparing us for what happens when we get there. So we have the power of His resurrection. 
We have the fellowship of His sufferings. The fellowship of His sufferings is the grace empathy to suffer with and comfort one another. The fellowship of His sufferings is the grace empathy. So we have grace empowerment and we have grace empathy to suffer with and comfort one another. These sufferings of Christ have not yet been completed. These sufferings of Christ have not yet been uh, fulfilled. There remain still some sufferings of Christ that remain lacking, Paul talks about. We're talking about the ongoing sufferings of Christ. We're not talking about Calvary. We're not talking about the sufferings that he did to save us. We're talking about the ongoing sufferings of Christ. All of this is ongoing. All of this is experiential sanctification for the church age. Christ continues to suffer. Now, Satan can't touch the person of Christ, but he can touch the bride of Christ. Understand what happens when uh, the adversary, when the world, the flesh, and the devil start afflicting the bride of Christ, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Why is he doing that? Satan's doing that because he hates Jesus. <laughs> the suffering is the sufferings of Christ now that's been multiplied to the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And so we have these passages that address the ongoing sufferings of Christ. And they're not done. They're not done. Okay? Anyway, so when we come back on Wednesday, we're going to be addressing these, the ongoing sufferings of Christ. And these are the ones that we fellowship in. The power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings being conformable unto His death knowing Christ with these three specific aspects. This is what Paul wants to gain. This is what Paul wants to attain to, and he says he's not there yet. He's going to reach forward to attain to this. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your truth. And I thank you, Father. You, you take us into some deep water sometimes, Father, and we, we're just so thankful that the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit is available to open our eyes, to show us what you want us to see. Show us the display, Father. You're, you're the God who shows and uh, I pray that what we've learned here this morning will become very real to us, not just academic information, but an experiential reality that we can live it out, that we can identify with what you're doing in our life so that we can uh, volitionally be uh, engaged with your, your program, your plan, your purposes. That uh, not only uh, do we accept the fact that you're displaying us to this world, but we join with you in that as your fellow workers. And we put ourselves on display right there with you, Father, in, uh, in all that you're doing. And I pray that everything we display would be the grace of Jesus Christ. All that we are, all that we do is grace. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.